This podcast was made on the homelands of the Darawal, Alauri and Wadiwadi peoples. The people who have a good mind to tell you this story today would like you to know that we're going to talk here about war and conflict. If you or someone you care about needs support, please call Lifeline on 13114. In 1998, my battalion went down to Pakapanyo, which is a large military base uh, about an hour north of Melbourne. We went down there for a major exercise. It was the middle of winter. About halfway through the exercise, it'd been raining, it blowing a gale, it's freezing cold. Um, most nights were definitely in the minuses, so a lot of us were hurting um, with, the, with the temperature. There was one night in particular, we'd just come back from a, a full day of activities of, of section attacks, of walking, and uh, it was getting really, really cold. It was in the minuses. Uh, we, we pulled into a harbour and, and were able to all rack out and get some sleep, but we needed to have a security picket. Basically, we needed to have two people awake so the rest of the section could sleep. When it was my turn to go out on picket, the guy come over to wake me up and could see that I was really hurting. Uh, I was blue, I was shivering, I was freezing cold, and I wasn't doing well, well at all. What this person did, Dean, instead of waking me up and making me go on picket, which rightfully he should have, he went back to his gear, grabbed his jumpers, grabbed his sleeping bag, tucked the jumpers around me and then put the sleeping bag over top of me to make sure I was as warm as he could make me, then lent in and said, don't worry about the picket, I'll go out and cover it. He went back out to the picket, told the section commander who was out there with him that I was in a very bad way um, and that he was going to cover the picket for me. Now the thing about this and why it stuck with me for 25 years was Dean had done every activity that I had done leading up to that moment so he was hurting as much as what I was but he could see that I was in a state worse than him and had the opportunity I suppose in his own mind to you know make sure a member of his section you know was was looked after. About a year later, in October 1999, uh, I found myself on a boat heading over to Dili for the East Timor conflict. Uh, we got into Dili very quickly, got our vehicles off, off the boat, and then we, we headed out to our, our location. And I still remember it now, and I can still you know smell what I smelt on that day, was the burning destruction of the capital of East Timor, Dili. Dili was gutted, it was about 95% was, was burnt to the ground. During the briefings we received back in Darwin on East Timor, we were brought up to speed about the country, so from the Portuguese to the Dutch uh, through to the Indonesians taking over the country. Uh, we were educated on the reporters, the Australian reporters that were murdered up in Balibo, uh, I believe it was 76. Part of the briefing um, that we received was that the Indonesians had given East Timor the opportunity to have a referendum to see if they wanted to have their country back and govern their own country. From there, once the votes come in, there was a resounding yes. Uh, that, uh, unfortunately, was the trigger or the turning point for all hell breaking loose in, in Dili and uh, also in East Timor itself. From that moment, the pro-Indonesian militia came through and, and just caused massive destruction through, through Dili. And not just Dili, it was every other city and village that we encountered during our time there. They kidnapped a lot of young men of, of fighting age and, and took them back over to, to West Timor. They raped, murdered, they pillaged the entire 
entire infrastructure of all the major towns, but Dili in particular, uh, and burnt everything to ground. One of the things we used to do in, in Dili, um, we needed to make sure that uh, our, our rifles uh, were, were constantly zeroed. So they set up a, a firing range down the south of Dili uh, in between two headlands on, on a deserted beach. Just so A, we wouldn't scare the locals with, with the gunshot. They'd been through enough the last 20 odd years. Uh, but to make sure that you know our weapons were zeroed properly in case we needed to use them. To, to drive there was a bit of a drive. It was up and down a couple of very steep mountain ranges. And and then around the famous Jesus Christ statue, um, which is towards the, the southwest, I believe it is, of, of Dili, and then down this this incredible range to the to the beach. I remember one day in particular, we just finished firing um, and we loaded back onto the Mog. Now the Mog's a, a large Australian transport truck, and we're driving back up over the over the mountain range. And a, we called them Venga buses, was the nickname we had for them. It was a bus full of locals, would have been about 30 people on this tiny little van. Um, and they were, you know, too far over on our side and our drivers swerved a little bit. Uh, and what happened, there was a large branch that we actually cleaned up. Now, it didn't hit the cabin, it was the cage of the back of the mog where we were all sitting that took the, the force of the, of the tree. Of me being right in the corner, I, I took the, the the majority of the force. What I remember from that was I was waking up uh, on the floor of the truck and a couple of the guys dragging me out. From there, uh, I remember, you know, sharp pains in my neck uh, and then my neck becoming very, very stiff very, very quickly. Uh, they sent uh, an army ambulance, they, they loaded me up and then I remember they took me to the, the Dilly Hospital. in this room um, with fire marks and smoke marks up and down the wall and this x-ray machine that looked like it was out of the, the 1920s. I remember getting loaded into that and a couple of minutes later, uh, it was a military doctor from a, another nation. It wasn't an Australian one. Come back and in broken English, you know, said, next fine, no dramas. Uh, they threw the helmet back on my head and pushed me back out into the carrier and, and off I went. Uh, for, for the rest of that trip and unfortunately now for the rest of my life, I've had some pretty major neck injuries um, and it's gradually, you know, unfortunately has gotten a little bit worse, but just the luck of the draw sometimes. Uh, we were at the coffee factory in Dilly. It's where um, Delta Company, which is my company, were, were housed. And every time it was my turn to go on to the, the guard or the guard box at the front um, sliding gate of the of the factory, there used to be the, all these little kids that would come up and play, but there was one little girl in particular, she would only been five or six, and her name was Effie, uh, would come and sit next to me. Now, Effie never spoke a word of English, and I was pretty bad with, with Tetan, but we were able to communicate through body language and pointing, and we were able to, you know, communicate with each other that way. And she would always come up when it was my turn for, for picket, sit down next to me, um, and then when it was my turn for, for picket to be over, would disappear back into the ruins. About three days before Christmas, my, my parents sent me over a Christmas present, which was this massive, very expensive Christmas cake. Um, I'm not a big fan of, of cakes. So what I decided to do was to give it to Effie and, and to her, her family. So I got our... Our translator, we went down and we caught out 
uh, Effie's name. And about 20 minutes later, the group of kids uh, found her and brought her up to the gate. And then via the translator, I said to her, this is a, a Christmas present for you and your family from, from me and my family back home in Australia. You know, and I remember looking down as I gave it to her and her tears were rolling out of her eyes as the translator, you know, did what he did. And she grabbed it and ran off really embarrassed. And, I, you know, I felt a little bit embarrassed that I caused that for her. About two days later, so I think it's Boxing Day now, I was working under the carrier, um, covered in oil and grease as I was trying to fix, uh, I think there was a problem with the engine, if memory serves me correct, and then I could hear this Mr. Max, Mr. Max. She called me Mr. Max, my, my name's Mark, but my nickname was Brax, so she was able to combine the two and would call me Mr. Max. So I heard Mr. Max, Mr. Max, and I come out from under the carrier and I, I couldn't believe the sight in front of me. She had gone home, obviously showered, she was in her best clothes, that she had, you know, and she had in her hands a little Christmas present. And what it was, was a scarf. So over in East Timor, there's a tradition that each person engraves their name in like a gold uh, material in this scarf. So it had a full name on this traditional East Timorese scarf. I'm a fairly big, rough individual, but that brought tears to my eyes. A couple of days later, we found out that um, we were leaving the um, uh, Dilly, actually, and we're going to head up to the border. I had the opportunity to do one more patrol, and uh, I went out uh, with the translator. I was able to locate her and her family. Uh, we went into this tin shed that's... You know, they built a, a tin shed for the family after what had happened. And I was fortunate that I had my wallet on me and I was able to give her dad some, some money that I had in my wallet, American money. And I said to the translator, look, you know, pass on to the dad, this is money for him and the family for food and water uh, and to look after each other. And, uh, the whole family broke down again. I started getting teary um, and that was my cue, cue to leave. To me, that, that is why we do what we do in the Australian Army, to, to look after those that can't look after themselves or for those who have been mistreated by you know, people that shouldn't be doing that. On the 1st of January 2000, uh, we knew prior to that date that we were actually going to be moving from Dili all the way up to, to the border between East Timor and West Timor. So early that morning, we, we packed up and, and left the, the coffee factory and, and made the drive. It's about a four-hour drive in the carriers all the way down to the border. We received um, a, a task in, it was just my section, to go up into the mountains to try and prove a, a track or a, a route. Uh, it was going to be about a five-day activity, so we loaded up the, the carrier with enough food and water and batteries for the radio and whatnot, and we headed up to up to the mountains. Now, you've got to remember that the, the mountains or the ridges in Timor are higher than Mount Kosciuszko in Australia, so there's some really massive ridgelines and, and mountains in, in East Timor. That afternoon, we came into a deserted village um, and we decided that we we're going to use that village because it was deserted as our forward operating base or FOB as we call it. So we could go out on foot patrols from there. We found an old, it looked like a barn. It had a roof and had framework, but there was no walls. So it was more of a barn than, than the huts next to it because we didn't want to take anyone's, anyone's house. So we, we used that as our section harbour. 
I remember waking up the second morning um, and I thought I was just seeing things because my eyes were still blurry, were quite high up in the mountains, and I was seeing movement coming out of the bush line. We could see that there was people coming out of the mountains and walking uh, towards us. They were actually the, the villagers that you know lived at the, the village that we were staying. And word had gotten around that the Australians were in the village and it was safe to come back out of the mountains. And there was a church about 200 metres behind us and they were going to church. They're, they're very religious over in, in East Timor, especially those up in the mountains. And, and that was the, the trend for the next couple of days. Now, on the third day... What happened was it was a very interesting experience for us. Uh, as more and more villagers come out of the mountain, uh, we had this older uh, village elder, maybe had one or two teeth in him. Um, instead of going to church, he decided that he wanted to stay with us in this little barn or our, our little section harbour, uh, and we were fine with that. Our interpreter kept saying, look, he, he's talking some type of Tetan, but it's a deeper, harsher uh, language, and he was struggling to pick it up. One thing the elder was able to do very, very well was to bum cigarettes off us. Um, during his stay there, I think he must have got at least a carton, carton and a half. You know, he either smoked them or, or put them away, which was fine with us. Uh, and, and that continued the trend for the next couple of days. So we'd go out patrol, we'll come back, you know, we'd leave half a section at the harbour and half would go out. And he, he stayed there. He, he didn't sleep in the harbour. He, he slept must, maybe in a house, I don't know. But always he was there in the morning when we got up. On the fourth night, the priest from the church actually come down and, and spoke to us. And we were asking him, you know, a few questions about the area, but one of the questions we asked him was about the elder. And it was during this encounter with the priest and, and the elder that we found out that we weren't the first Australians to be in that village. In fact, about 60 years or 50 years beforehand, during World War II, this village elder and his dad had helped Australian soldiers who were hiding from the Japanese. Uh, and he was able to tell us the story clearly, almost like he was reliving it, you know, it happened the day before, about what they were doing. Doing. He pointed up to the mountains, to the caves, where they hid the Australians from the Japanese, um, how they used to go and get food and, and water for the Australians and kept them safe up in all these mountains. These soldiers were trapped on the East Timor country. For about eight months, they were deemed missing because the communication gear that they had got broken in a firefight and they couldn't communicate back to the mainland. So they actually uh, reported this, this unit as being missing. But what was happening during that eight months is they were doing like a counter guerrilla warfare. They were going down, stealing radio parts off the Japanese and built their own radio and were able to communicate back to Darwin to, to let them know that the unit was still alive. From there, the Navy was sent out to the closest side of East Timor. They made their way down and jumped on the boat, went back to Darwin, and a short time later, we were over in Papua New Guinea to, to fight another day. And it was all because of this village elder, his family, uh, and the rest of the villages in East Timor that that was able, able to happen. And sitting there hearing this story, all of us in our section, there was nine young men in our section, we, we were just lost for words, you know, hearing that 50 years beforehand that this, this elder who'd been <laughs> taking our cigarettes played an important part in World War II with, with Australian men, with Australian soldiers. So 
So on the last day, just as we were finished packing up the, the carrier and putting all our gear in it, the, the church had, service had finished for the day and, and everybody had filed out to the church from the church and were making their way back to where we were. Uh, and there was a lot more villages uh, on the Friday than what was there on previous days. And most of them were all dressed up, you know, in, in their best clothes. They then formed like a semicircle around us and broke into this song, this traditional song that they had. Myself and the, and the rest of the section, you know, were absolutely blown away by this this gesture, you know, from the villages to thank us for, for what we were doing over there and, and for the safety that we provided them. So post-East Timor uh, came back to Australia and, and really got on to the routine of what I thought the Army was going to be about. I was fortunate enough to, to actually go back to East Timor again in 2002, 2003 as a section commander. Uh, and then from there, just went on to, to do courses, promotion courses, postings to different units and training establishments and around, uh, around Australia. About 20 years later, I found myself posted to, to Wollongong as the training way with training warrant officer where I spent about four and a half years here. It was the last couple of years that my body really started telling me it was almost time to go. Uh, I was starting to struggle, my, my back, the neck injury that I sustained from that vehicle accident in East Timor. So with about two years to go, I started to prepare for my discharge. I uh, enrolled in a university degree. Uh, I started looking at jobs post-military post to see what I could maybe you know look at once I got out. And before I know it, I was being farewelled. I handed my keys, my, my uniform, my ID, uh, and then the, the gate at the, the training depot at Wollongong closed behind me, and that was the end of my, my 22 and a bit years in the military. Discharging at the end of 2019, just in time for, for COVID, Although I was medically discharged, there was no sudden requirement to, to get a job. Um, but from working for 22 years and being very, very active, uh, I struggled not working. So I started applying for, for jobs. I applied for numerous jobs over, you know, four or five months and I got absolutely nowhere. No feedback, no nothing. I didn't know where my applications were. Uh, and it started, you know, unfortunately affecting my mental state, you know, pretty bad. I went from running a depot of 120 odd soldiers, doing everything that a depot needed somebody to do. And then once I was out, I, I couldn't even get a job. I couldn't even get an interview. I've gone from being away for 20 odd years to all of a sudden being home. Uh, COVID with the lockdown, nobody was, was leaving their houses. It just added to the state that I was in. It affected me that bad that I actually moved into the spare room. My wife and I clashed all the time, you know, and she made it very, very clear I'm not the warrant officer anymore at home. Um, you know, we're a family and we need to work together. 
and it was my daughter who was probably seven at the time um, was the one that snapped me out of it she said to me daddy why are you angry and I said I'm not angry sweetie and she goes daddy you're angry all the time uh, and that was the moment that you know caused me to, to stop the Army has taught us a lot of things, uh, in particular resilience, you know, flexibility and adaptability. Uh, so with, with my daughters, you know, kicking the backside, it gave me a, a new determination to, to get out of this rut uh, and, and to get on with living and, and you know, making a success with my, my new career. I received a text from a mate of mine that said, hey, there's a job being advertised at Campbelltown City Council that you could be interested in. So jump online and, and have a look and, and see what you think. Where I struck gold on this was down the bottom at the point of contact was um, Nicole Jenkins. Now, Nicole is a defence spouse and, and had been for, you know, for 15, 20 years. So when I rang her up to inquire about the job, she was able to explain not only the job, but the council as a whole by linking it back to military uh, and the diversity of the military and the diversity of, of local government. So I submitted my paperwork in and um, a couple of days later, I got a phone call asking if I would like a, a phone interview, you know, which I, I jumped at. And it turned out to be a complete train wreck, an utter disaster. Uh, Nick was asking me questions and I just could not answer these questions the way they, they needed them to be answered. Every time I gave an answer, it was always about the team. You know, the team did this or the team did that, where in a job interview, you've got to sell yourself. It's what you did, not what the team. Now, I came from a team environment for 22 years where there's no individuals. It was always about, a, 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 about the team. And that's the part that really caused me to struggle. Uh, at the end of the, the phone interview, I, I thanked Nick for the opportunity. And it was during this quick chat that we had that she found out that that was my first job interview in a, you know, since 1997. You know, and, and once she realised that, she then spent about 35 minutes to give me feedback. And she told me where I needed to be. She told me where I was currently at and, and what I could do to close that gap. A couple of days later, I was given the opportunity to, to do a face-to-face. -face. Uh, the day of the face-to-face -face came and I went up to Campbelltown, went into the interview, a completely different person to how I was with the phone interview. Uh, I almost kicked the door off the hinges. I was that confident now that I understood the rules to this new game. And, and that's all it is. I spent 20 odd years in a different game and now I'm, I'm playing a, a new sport that has new rules that I needed to get my head around. With the feedback from Nicole, I was able to answer all the questions, you know, so much better than I did with the phone interview to the point that on the drive home, Nicole actually rang me to say, no matter what happens, you need to be very proud of what you just did. Where you were a couple of days ago to where you are now is just an incredible achievement. And as I said to Nicole, it's because of the feedback. Bit of a plot twist here, I never got the job that I applied for. Nick rang me up a couple of days later to, to let me know that they'll go with somebody else, but I was fine with that. The experience and the feedback that I had taken away from this, I honestly thought the next job I apply for, I was going to get. Uh, however, before I could even think, you know, Nick, for, for the opportunity, she said, however, uh, the hiring panel were unanimous in saying that we need to find you a job at Campbelltown. You've got something that we need here. Would you let us find you a job? 
and you know straight away I'm like of course I would uh, so a couple of weeks later uh, Nicole rang me up to, to let me know that she's offering me a 12 month temporary contract as the people and culture uh, officer at, at Campbelltown uh, which I gladly took uh, about a month into that the learning and development officer position become vacant uh, and I was told in no uncertain terms that you know I would be applying for that position so I went through the whole recruiting process again but this time I knew you know what needed to be done and I was lucky enough to uh, to gain or to land that that opportunity and I've been there you know for three and a half years now. After getting the job as the Learning and, and Development Officer at Campbelltown City Council, one of the first things I did, I went up to Nicole and said to her, I really want to create a veterans program. I want people to learn from my my journey, my mistakes and, and everything that I did wrong um, so they don't do that themselves. But I also want hiring managers to learn from what Nicole did. One of the things I did say to her was that this is going to be an actual program and not just some words on the bottom of a website that, you know, says we support veterans. The situation I discovered was, you know, up at that point of time, there was between six and 7,000 veterans leaving the military every year, looking for meaningful jobs. There's also local governments all the way around Australia looking for talented, highly skilled staff members um, to, to come into their organisation. And, and that's the part that dawned on me very, very quickly. Serving your nation and serving your community are very, very similar. They take like-minded people to do, to do both of those. we educate uh, veterans or transitioning members about the opportunities within local government. Uh, educating veterans on the hiring process of local government. How do we juggle this confusing recruiting process? How do they learn from the mistakes that I made? The other thing I wanted to do was educate hiring managers and, and HR staff about veterans. What I did was I created a portal in our webpage. The hiring managers can go to that portal and actually have a look at the skill set of each individual rank in the military. What are the skills that they've mastered and how those skills are transferable into local government or other organisations. So that helps close the, the gap that they may have when it comes to understanding military. biggest thing that I'm take away from this and the, the one thing that gives me the greatest joy is knowing that I can give back to veterans. I can see somebody who's struggling. They're struggling to understand the rules of the new game. They're struggling to understand, you know, what they can bring to an organisation. They're probably struggling to understand their own self-worth. And it draws me back to that incident back in Parker in 1998, where I'm now that person that can see somebody else struggling and I've got the opportunity to help them, to protect them, to guide them or show them the way. The people who have had a good mind to tell you this story are Mark, Marco, Asher, Christopher, Cameron, Joseph, Lachlan, Daniel and Phil, with sound mixing by Chris. Original music in this story is by Nick Bomarito, Crypt of Insomnia, Ari Goldstein, Archie Music and also Kevin MacLeod. You can find more detailed music credits in the show notes. 
Thanks to Albion Park RSL sub-branch and Wurrilla RSL sub-branch for putting us in touch with our local veterans. Thanks also to Audio Technica Australia for their amazing equipment. And TAFE New South Wales Wollongong Screen and Media for supporting their students to assist with this podcast. Thanks, Matt. This story was created for Shell Harbour Snapshots, a podcast by Shell Harbour City Museum, and it was proudly funded by the New South Wales Government. To find more Shell Harbour stories, visit Discover Shell Harbour. The link is in the show notes. To contact us or find out more, check out our website, agoodmind2.com.au.